Right now, we all might feel a little disconnected. For seniors living alone with smaller social circles, feelings of loneliness and isolation can feel overwhelming. But there's something we can all do to help. Connect with your older loved one virtually and have the conversation of a lifetime with StoryCorps Connect. Anyone can conduct an interview, and every interview will be archived at the Library of Congress, becoming part of American history. Connect, honor, share at StoryCorpsConnect.org slash AARP. A message from AARP, StoryCorps, and the Ad Council. 2.14 remaining. The pistol with 66 right now. Here's a basket for him if he can convert. And a steal. Look at him fight for this ball. The Pistols doing it all. A great ball game. Traveling. And the crowd is going wild here at the Superdome. I wonder what kind of contract he's going to ask for after this ball game. Well, he ought to call his agent in right away. Bonnie Shelton with a dramatic stuff shot. 45 to go, and it's just a question of how many the pistol will score. Here he is with the basketball. He takes the shot. No good. He's forcing a little bit. There's no question about that, but he's making most of them anyway. And he has to be tired right now. Sure. Ticky Burden. Out the pistol. Goes on a drive. He's out of the ball game. They called him with an offensive foul, and that will foul him out of the ball game with 1.18 to go. Listen to the hand he gets with 68 points. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Hey, gang, how are you? It's your pal, Tim. Thank you for coming by. Uh, Of course, it's Good Seats still available. Our little curious podcast journey that we do each and every week into the the, the wilds of what used to be in professional sports. We we, uh, are tickled uh, to no end uh, that uh, you have found us and uh, discovered us uh, in the craziness of podcast land and all the other media, frankly, choices that you have available to you. And uh, thanks for, uh, for making a stop here. Uh, as we uh, spin the globe and uh, land on a city uh, that we've uh, been desperate to uh, find an excuse to get into, uh, and in particular around basketball and the and the and the jazz of the old uh, well the old jazz if you will of New Orleans the New Orleans jazz of the NBA I was only there for about five years or so, but uh, it is probably the most or one of the most requested uh, teams and uh, situations that we've had over the years and. Uh, we got a convenient excuse to do so. Our guest this week, Nick Weldon, uh, has a a tremendous article that I just recently discovered uh, that he wrote a couple of years back uh, for SB Nation. Uh, That's S as in Sam, B as in boy, nation, sbnation.com. It's called A Streetcar Named Basketball. And uh, it's a little bit of a, I guess, a cursed history uh, in professional hoops. Uh, Obviously, today with the uh, New Orleans Pelicans, and obviously it's a uh, hopefully a fairly stable situation that, but uh, what's stable these days, but I digress. But uh, we get into kind of the original real, uh, you know, kind of a deepest story, I guess, of pro basketball uh, in New Orleans, the New Orleans jazz style. Uh, but uh, you'll, as you'll see in this conversation with Nick coming up in a few moments, uh, we kind of use it as frankly, as a tableau. Uh, see what I did there, a little French Creole uh, into 
really uh, sports generally professionally uh, in New Orleans. So it's kind of a it's kind of evolved into more of a survey conversation. But make no mistake, our, our excuse, as you heard in our uh, little bumper clip there, is uh, is uh, to start with the New Orleans Jazz, Pistol Pete Maravich in, in particular, right, being probably the most uh, memorable component of of that team and uh, arguably was that team for the years that he was there. Uh, that clip that you heard was uh, from it was Madison Square Garden production. So that was uh, that means that the team was producing it and the garden was producing it. It was a Knicks broadcast from February 25th, 1977. And uh, Andy Musser and Cal Ramsey on the call. I'm going to guess uh, that that was on the old uh, WOR Channel 9 as uh, a game broadcast uh, through the uh, facilities of Madison Square Garden Productions. That's just my guess. But the uh, importance, of course, of that game was Pete... Maravich, the pistol, scoring 68 points on the Knickerbockers uh, that game. And uh, as you could hear in the, in the stands, in the crowd, uh, everybody in a frenzy uh, as Pete, who, who, by the way, at the end of the game said he could have scored a whole lot more. He, he missed a bunch of he, what he feels were easy shots of the, sort of in the early part of the game. And uh, as that sort of clip was uh, uh, evidence of, there were a bunch of points that he missed by, I guess, forcing up some shots. Uh, near the end of that game until he fouled out. But, you know, uh, th- that part of the magic and uh, of, of of the brief and somewhat fleeting time of the Jazz in New Orleans, the NBA, in that case, playing in the Superdome. But uh, the story goes much deeper than that. But, you know, you're also find out, too, that where we kind of sort of started as the Jazz, this, this sort of evolved and expanded into more of a broadly discussed uh, New Orleans sports history. Uh, we, of course, get into uh, the basketball predecessor. Of this, that being the New Orleans Buccaneers of the, wait for it, American Basketball Association, the ABA. If you were listening uh, to us last week as we got into uh, the history of professional pro hoops in Pittsburgh, you will know and remember that the first ever ABA finals, 1968, uh, was uh, a contest, a seven game uh, death match, if you will, between uh, the New Orleans Buccaneers and the Pittsburgh Pipers. And yes, for those aware listeners from last week, uh, indeed, that was a, uh, a young Ray Scott who was the narrator of that. But again, I digress, as I'm, I'm wont to do on this little show. And uh, the Buccaneers were, you know, fair to middling. Uh, they had a little bit of a, a little bit of a blip in the in the ABA for a few years, and you know that that's pretty much it. It, it really it was a football town. Uh, the, getting the Saints in the late '60s, uh, as you'll hear in this chat, it was really sort of the real pushpin of professionalism, I guess, when it comes to sports. Uh, that New Orleans really uh, sort of had on their map. And the NBA came a call in a few years later thinking, hey, we could do this too. Obviously, things have changed since then. But stay tuned and you'll hear a, a bunch of different things in the New Orleans sports history. Uh, we get into a little bit of uh, Louis Armstrong's uh, Secret Nine baseball team uh, back in the day, uh, back in the uh, early 30s. So yeah, he was uh, the owner and sponsor of said uh, minor league. Actually, it was a minor league. It was a Negro League team. And it was. Uh, we'll get into some of it. Uh, women's basketball is part of this story. Uh, the New Orleans pride of the Women's Basketball League, the WBL. Remember our conversation with uh, Molly Kazmer, nay, uh, Molly Bolin, uh, one of the biggest uh, stars of that league back in the late 70s, early 80s. Marcus Dupree, remember him? And the New Orleans Breakers of the USFL uh, creeps into this story. One year of the Breakers franchise that was a three-year-long endeavor in the USFL. Uh, and it was the second stop on the journey of that team, starting in Boston or, or you know, in the, the, the sort of, I don't know if it was even the suburbs. I think it was, it was actually 
sort of somewhere in in the city, but then going to New Orleans, and then after that going to Portland, Oregon. Talk about a a, a peripatetic uh, existence. And we even get into things like uh, the New Orleans Sun Belt Nets of the World Team Tennis thing, which we're going to get into deeper in a few weeks in another couple episodes. Anyway, New Orleans history, rich generally, but certainly in sports, a lot of it forgotten. And in particular, basketball and the jazz, that's our starting point with our conversation this week with Nick Weldon. Uh, He not only the author of that uh, article and a bunch of other sports things, but also an historian, a a legit historian uh, who works at the historic New Orleans collection. Yeah, it's a museum it's a research center. It's a publisher. Great uh, web uh, articles and, and such. And uh, it's a great excuse to uh, get into more of the history of New Orleans, not just sports. But our conversation with Nick coming up in just a moment. And uh, as they say, you will uh, you will enjoy it, I guarantee. Uh, you will also enjoy visiting our uh, sponsored friends this week at 503 Sports. Yes, Dustin Alameda and his merry crew. Uh, the king of throwbacks, they call themselves, at 503 Sports. And the website, of course, is 503-sports.com. Don't forget the dash. 503-sports.com. And, uh, of course, we've got a promo code for you. It's SEATS, S-E-A-T-S, 10%. My goodness, off of all your purchases. And this week in particular, 503-sports.com, the place to point your browser to, a great collection and assortment of New Orleans defunct and uh, forgotten sports team stuff. You remember the New Orleans Breakers of the aforementioned USFL, that one year that they were there. Well, they got uh, not only shirts, but they also have the Breakers USFL jersey. It's fantastic. How about uh, the uh, New Orleans Buccaneers of the ABA, that first Real attempt at pro basketball in the Crescent City. They've got a great T-shirt with the great Buccaneers logo on a couple of them, actually, uh, as well as a uh, very smart looking New Orleans Buccaneers snapback cap with a 503 seal of authenticity. It's fantastic. It's got a it's a great blown up sewn on uh, logo there of the uh, swashbuckling Buccaneer dribbling a beautiful red, white and blue ABA basketball. It's great. There's a, a New Orleans night. T-shirt, the New Orleans Knight, you may say. Well, it's the team that was in the AFL, the Arena Football League. we got a bunch of Arena Football League fans that uh, listen to this little show. If you remember the Knight, well, shirt's there for you, too. And a bunch of other stuff. You, how about some Shreveport stuff if you're you know in the, na- in the neighborhood? Shreveport Pirates, remember them? The old WLAF, World League of American Football. How about the Shreveport Steamer of the WFL? A couple, there's a shirt there. There's a, there's a jersey there. It's fantastic. All that stuff. And more is there for you to enjoy, not just New Orleans, but all kinds of great cities, all kinds of great sports. It's 503 sports, 503-sports.com. And again, that promo code SEATS, S-E-A-T-S, and you'll get 10% off all of your purchases. And we thank Dustin and his friends at 503 Sports. Oh, by the way, I'm sorry. I made a mistake. I, I did correct myself in real time here. The Shreveport Pirates... They were in the Canadian Football League. I'm sorry, that was part of the CFL, not the World League of American Football. No, that was the CFL thing. We've talked about a couple episodes about that too. Gosh, the longer it goes, the more we forget, but uh, I'm glad I corrected myself. That's what we do here on this show. We try to sort of set the record straight, and here we go. We're going to get into New Orleans. We've been looking for the excuse to do so, and Nick has uh, been kind enough to uh, humor us with uh, a great chat. As we get into it, New Orleans, the jazz, and all kinds of other sports and professional status. Here it comes, please, as always, enjoy.
Why don't you give us a little background on you? Because you're, you're, I think, a, an historian by trade, no? Uh, well, I'm actually probably a, more a journalist by trade. I, I went to journalism school and uh, had been in magazines, uh, sports journalism especially, for many, many years. And uh, after moving to New Orleans, I, I did a lot of freelance work. That's actually when I did the jazz story and ultimately wound up at a museum down here that has a publishing branch. And so now I'm a book editor and I also edit ex exhibitions. So we had like a recent sports history show that I did a lot of work on. So I've kind of transitioned into, I'm still you know writing and editing, but I'm doing it at a museum. It's called the Historic New Orleans Collection based in the French Quarter down here. And I've been here for about uh, three years now. So I've kind of merged the journalism with the history. And uh, yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Uh, I think it's important to put a plug in for uh, the uh, school you went to for journalism. Oh, <laughs> Northwestern, <laughs> Northwestern University. I feel like that's a that's a joke, though. You know, Northwestern people always like to talk about Northwestern. I was going to hide it, but uh, <laughs> this one's on you. Well, I will. I won't hide it because I um, I didn't go undergrad. I almost went there though for undergrad, uh, but I did hmm. go in high school for a summer program in wait for it journalism at the Medill School. I was the chair of <laughs> the uh, national what they call I guess they call the National High School Institute and. Um, it was uh, the summer of my life back in the uh, early to mid '80s, and uh, it was it helped me discover as an East Coast kid, snobbish and all, that there was this thing called the Great Big Midwest out here, including the Great <laughs> Chicago. And so, I, and, and journalism certainly, right, going through, uh, I don't know, best word I can come to mind is convulsions, uh, like a lot of things. You know, it's uh, it's important though, right? The the words, uh, and arguably this this um, this little podcast, frankly, as I sort of. Uh, went uh, into the advertising and, and media industry kind of side of things versus journalism. It's it's kind of a way for me to scratch that itch from early in life to, I don't know, at least get some kind of creative expression out there in stories and stuff. And this is one of them. Absolutely. Yeah. Storytelling is so important. Um, yeah. No, I, I agree. And, and uh, you know, to me, this is like a little bit of an oral history of sorts, right? We try to get some direct participants, but also as as the stories get longer and older, right, we rely on on third party folks, either who've done their, the interviews and the conversations and the investigation themselves, or frankly, it becomes more of an historical journey. But this, give me, give me a sense sort of, so you've been in New Orleans for a couple of years. So maybe we can sort of set the table for New Orleans generally for those who uh, really haven't been or, or haven't experienced uh, the uh, the intriguing lifestyle of New Orleans and Louisiana and, and, the, and, and that area down in the southeast. Uh, give us maybe sort of a sense of, of New Orleans generally, and maybe perhaps as a as a layer on top of that, sort of, I guess, where professional sports sort of sits in all that. Because it's deep, but it's not, right? Because it's not, there are only two major professional teams uh, domiciled there today. But it is a sports town, though, in many respects. Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. You know, I've been here in New Orleans for uh, about six years. Absolutely love the city. You know, in terms of uh, you know, people who haven't been here, New Orleans kind of has this reputation of, of being a party town. And it definitely has that the atmosphere is very laid back. Uh, all of your neighbors are super friendly. We have parades when there's not a pandemic going on. Uh, you know, it's just uh, you go to a bar, you can get a go cup and, and take it out in the street. And, uh, you know, the weather's great, except in August. And, uh, you know, it's just a very fun uh town that has just such a such a rich history and you know it is in terms of pro sports town on the smaller end of things i think we have somewhere between three and four hundred thousand people in new orleans proper 
but it has a rich sports history. It has a rich history as a uh, venue for big events. Um, so, you know, I think a lot of people know what the Sugar Bowl is, the big college uh, football game. And that was kind of one of the earlier sporting events that, that put New Orleans on the map. Uh, but even before then, and this goes into some of my museum work, but we hosted a lot of very huge uh, boxing matches, even before boxing was really legal. Um, and, uh, you know, it's always been a city that has drawn people out of curiosity because of the mystery, because of the, you know, just the good vibes, you know, it's um, so so sports always was a natural fit. And for a long time, and, and this was kind of in the story I wrote a few years ago, uh, it's been a football town. And, you know, people uh, have always kind of described it in terms of sports in New Orleans, even though we've had baseball teams like minor league teams and, um, you know, the other sports have come and went. But New Orleans as this kind of uh, cultural center in the South, you know, obviously football is big in the South, especially college football. Um it's a football town. So we've had the Sugar Bowl for since the 1930s. Um, there've been football rivalries, LSU and Tulane that, you know, goes all the way back to the 1800s. Um, and when the, uh, saints arrived, that was like the, you know, city's foray into professional football. And it always been kind of a college football town. And ever since the saints got here, even though they were very bad to start out with, um, they have kind of dominated the professional sports landscape in New Orleans. And so my angle with the whole jazz story and kind of taking a long look at the history of basketball in the city is how basketball has always kind of tried to elbow in uh, to have its own place in the New Orleans sports landscape to, you know, sometimes uh, it has not always been successful in that regard. Um, but you know, even before there was football here, this was considered more of a baseball town. So, you know, I think it's just generational and, you know, it depends on the success of the home teams. Um, but, you know, this is a Saints town. This is a Saints city and always has been, probably always will be. But there's definitely room for other sports and other stories to, to get in there. It's also interesting, too, because as, as we've gotten uh, into uh, lots of leagues and teams and situations and stuff over the course of this silly little show uh you know 1967 when the saints adjuncted into the uh, into the nfl via expansion uh people forget although we haven't dave dixon who was a, a pretty uh, uh established and uh, notable businessman down in in new orleans he was the guy actually credited with sort of the original ideas around the usfl way, as way back as i think 65 a couple of years prior uh, actually 61 um a little yeah. bit earlier um that was part of the um exhibit we did was um you know dave was very generous to the collection and um uh, donating a bunch of his archival materials and it was always you know this kind of goes to what i was saying about new orleans being a baseball town we'd had the uh new orleans pelicans which is a southern league uh minor league team for um decades and decades and in the mid uh 20th century there was talk of building a professional sports stadium in new orleans but early on they wanted it to be a baseball stadium and dave kind of came in you know very early in that stage and pushed for football he said football's the future we need a football team and so that took a lot of work in order to convince the nfl to expand to new orleans and so at first he was coming up with this alternative league um 
as a way to gain leverage. You know, if we can come up with a rivalry, maybe we can later use that. And so obviously New Orleans ended up getting the Saints and that was through some, you know, kind of backroom dealing and some congressional, uh, you know, arm twisting. But uh, the idea predated the Saints coming here and then he ended up going ahead with the USFL in the um, late 70s, I believe is when it. Yeah, early out. 80s. Yeah, yeah. It's just interesting because it already, I, I sense in that story uh, that it was a little bit of, you know, maybe we'll never get the NFL down here, but maybe we can still take advantage of football because it is still a pretty good football hotbed, obviously, the, the collegiate and, and Sugar Bowl and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, because it was all, it, way back when, in his mind, it right it was a sort of set up as a, yeah, I call it an alternative football league, but certainly one that was playing in a different part of the season and arguably could be uh, intertwined or, or interrelated or or somehow you know, drafting off of the NFL, but not directly competing with it. But then, you know, I digress. <laughs> but so, so let's talk about. So, I mean, you're mentioning baseball, and I guess we, you know, we'll we'll center in the basketball thing because obviously that's where a lot of the other than football heat, at least until the USFL comes back into the picture, uh, comes to play. But you're mentioning baseball, right? So the a lot, the minor leagues, right, and and even uh, in your uh, in your article for your uh, New Orleans uh, the uh, history. Uh, Tell me the name of the the uh, the the official. Yeah, the historic the historic New Orleans collection. And in that, so there's a great article that uh, uh, sort of oversees uh, some of the some of the interesting stories and stuff, right? So besides boxing, right, there is you know New Orleans and baseball goes go back a way a long distance, and I'm surprised, frankly, that besides minor leagues, uh, why not uh, the attempt to even get to the highest level of major league baseball at some point. Sure. Yeah. You know, that's a good question. And, and I'm not really sure why that never materialized. I don't know if it was just that New Orleans never, you know, had the size and, and draw that uh, maybe MLB wanted. But the other thing was that it's always had, to your point, a, a rich baseball tradition. I mean, this goes back, you can go all the way back to the 1860s, 1870s. And so there have been a number of uh, minor leagues that have come and went. I mean, the sport was segregated for a really long time in New Orleans. And so you had a lot of different leagues. You know, there were black baseball leagues. There were the white exclusive baseball leagues. And, you know, but there was always baseball being played here going back into the, the late 1860s. And uh, I think because of the rich tradition of some of those teams that gained a foothold and actually lasted several decades, like the New Orleans Pelicans, you know, it could be that they already had a very successful minor league team. And so there was never really an urge, you know, to to go major, although there were major league teams that held um, exhibition games. The New York Yankees, uh, I want to say in the 50s, uh, well, that even, may be wrong. Even as late as the 70s, I think I remember a couple of exhibition games yeah. in, the, in yep. the, uh, the Superdome, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. That's right. Yeah, that's that's what I was thinking of. Yeah, right. So after the Pelicans uh, left town and it was either 60 or 61 there was still a desire for New Orleans to have baseball. And so, yeah, so you had the Yankees come down in the 70s in the Superdome. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, so, I, and it's also interesting, too, that there's uh, yeah, even the, uh, you're mentioning the Negro Leagues, which we've gotten into quite extensively, but obviously it's so much to uh, unpack uh, with all kinds of stories there. But one of which, for another, another day perhaps, is, you know, the idea of barnstorming teams and teams that were sort of, Loosely, or or maybe not even affiliated with with whatever leagues there were at the time, and the Negro leagues were certainly full of, you know, numerous ups and downs in, in sort of a, a league quote unquote play. 
But uh, Louis Armstrong, right, with his Secret Nine team back in the early 30s, right? I mean, uh, not sort of necessarily known for their great play, but they certainly were dapper in those uniforms and certainly drew a crowd because of obviously the uh, the patron saint of that team, if you will. Yeah, I mean, um, 1931 was the season. And, um, you know, at that point, like I said, there there has been black baseball in New Orleans dating back to the late 1860s and a lot of really successful teams uh, over the years. In fact, the first effort to form a uh, black baseball league was in 1886 called the Southern League of Colored Baseballists. And uh, there was a New Orleans team called the Unions as a reference to the Civil War. And um, so, so there had been decades and decades of teams, and some teams ended up being very successful. Louis Armstrong sponsored a team in 1931 to kind of tap into this rich tradition in New Orleans. And, uh, you know, it was called his Secret Nine, and they weren't very good. Um, but they hosted some pretty sensational exhibitions in New Orleans that summer. And, uh, you know, Louis fitted them out with some very nice uniforms. And so they were, you know, the best looking team on the diamond, but the local papers often uh, took their jabs at the contrast between uh, their uniforms and their play. But, you know, that, that just is to say that somebody as famous as Armstrong uh, was tapped into the local baseball scene uh, in New Orleans, even, you know, during his musical career. And, and that as an evidence of the vibrancy of uh, the baseball in New Orleans at that time. So as we sort of fast forward into the 60s, right? So um, and lots to unpack in all those things. We, we try to kind of focus as much as we can on, on major league stuff. But let's look at the late 60s, right? In New Orleans, right? When we when we talk about, quote unquote, major league sports, there is only one team in town at that time, the relatively new and arguably well, relatively woeful, uh, New Orleans Saints. But the NBA, right, and basketball, right? So maybe a little bit about sort of why basketball perhaps was the sport that would, if you will, step up to perhaps d- dig into this market that was maybe arguably underserved in terms of pro sports. Because, you know, it sounds like baseball, if anything, would have had the better chance uh, out of the any of the sports that were not represented at the top tier. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, it started with the, uh, well, it didn't start. There have been a number of basketball leagues that came and went that maybe lasted one season and, and Louisiana and had and New Orleans had representation. But the first real success was the New Orleans Buccaneers and the ABA. And to this date, they are the only New Orleans basketball team to have played in a championship um, they lost in the 1968 ABA championship. It was the first ABA championship. They lost to the Pittsburgh Pipers, Connie Hawkins, in, in seven games. Um, but, you know, there was, a, there was a moment here where, you know, the ABA, the Buccaneers, were a, a good team. Um, but it coincided. It was the same year as the Saints arriving. And so there was just much more enthusiasm. And, and I think part of it was that the Saints arriving – that was a long time coming. It had taken years and years and a lot of public interest and action to get the football team here. So unfortunately, the Buccaneers were an afterthought. And um, and after that, you know, inaugural success uh, didn't last in town very long. Um, they they were led there two of their star players, Doug Moe, Larry Brown. You know, names might sound familiar. Went on to be very successful NBA coaches. Um, but they, they always had a hard time drawing well at their games. And uh, 
I, I want to say they they did a barnstorming tour in 1970-71, um, or they had scheduled it anyway. But before the season started, they they moved to Memphis. So uh, short short lived. But the Buccaneers did have their moment in the sun in 1968. Yeah, and little known fact that uh, part of that ownership group uh, was a uh, one uh, loud for future loudmouth, or maybe he was a loudmouth at the time too, Morton Downey Jr. So that's a whole other <laughs> rabbit hole of intrigue that we want to get to. Well, yeah, and look, we've had um, uh, ABA founder Dennis Murphy uh, on this show, uh, 90 oh, awesome. some odd years old, and still sharp as attack and and um it's intriguing i would love to sort of understand a little bit even more uh as we maybe dig deeper as to why new orleans right because uh obviously the aba was focused on uh markets uh that were if you will underserved or could sort of serve as fodder i guess for potential over over time expansion and or merging goodness with the nba um but again you know arguably you, you mentioned the point i mean new orleans is still relatively at the time pristine, fertile, uh, uh, untapped uh, potential. The fact that that basketball at a pro level, right, was coming to town and was only drawing two, 3,000 fans a game, that seems a little surprising. I wonder if it was basketball or it was literally the Saints, uh, draw, you know, sucking up all of the uh, the energy and the sponsorship dollars and that kind of stuff, or or maybe the market was too small and just really couldn't support at the time. It's a it's a good question. Um, you know, I there was a there's a great Sports Illustrated article about the you know early days of the ABA. This is I think it was in '67, and this is they described New Orleans as an area where basketball is an interlude between January bowl games and spring football practice. I mean, it, it really could just be that there just wasn't enough of a basketball tradition. Although, you know, that's not really entirely true. I could go on another tangent about uh, the invention of the women's basketball rule book in New Orleans in 1895. The, the point is that I think football had decades of uh, interest and history with the Sugar Bowl to kind of build up that local, natural local fan base. And, you know, the Buccaneers, they played in the Loyola Fieldhouse. It was not, you know, it was a college arena. It was not the best digs. And it, it, it probably could as much been about the lack of investment in the franchise um, as to why it couldn't get a foothold. But, I mean, the idea of basketball um, was, was stayed there. And obviously in 1974, uh, with the expansion of the jazz to New Orleans, you know, it really did have a nice moment here before it, it kind of abruptly ended. All right, I want I want to get to the women's side uh, after we sort of dig into what you just uh, set the table for very nicely, right? So, all right, so so let's let's get a sense of the early '70s, right? The Bucks had basically uh, moved on to I think it was Memphis to become the Tams, uh, and there were a couple of years there where there was no quote unquote pro basketball, so. From what you're able to determine, maybe do you have any sort of sense as to uh, why the NBA, uh, why New Orleans, why maybe 73, 74 uh, becomes a, a more maybe opportune time, given what was not necessarily the most successful attempt to start with pro basketball earlier? You know, I think it's a good question. You know, I don't I can't really get in the minds of uh, Sam Battistone or Fred Rosenfeld, who were the, the guys who kind of led the group uh, to bring the jazz, uh, you know, bring the bring basketball and the jazz to the NBA. It was 1974. But, you know, I'm, I'm sure that they saw uh, a business opportunity, a growing sport. A big thing was that the Superdome was under construction at the time. So they saw this 
you know, at the time, the greatest stadium on earth about to open up as an opportunity to, you know, fill the gaps uh, when football wasn't being played. I mean, you know, other than the overhead costs of, you know, trying to fill an arena, it probably was seen as a great opportunity. You, they didn't start in the Superdome, but it was it took several years to build. And so I'm sure, you know, the NBA saw that as a viable professional sports venue. The ownership saw it as an opportunity to potentially make some good money selling tickets. And, and then, you know, they knew they had to come in and make a splash because as soon as they got the expansion, they traded two number one draft picks, two second rounders, and some other options to get Pete Maravich so that when they had this team, they could start with some flash and sizzle. And, and Pete obviously had local roots with having gone to Louisiana State University. Uh, before we get into Pete, Sam Battistone, uh, intriguing character uh, for a number of reasons, but uh, why would people know who this guy is? Um, that's a good question. I mean, they, they would know him maybe from having moved the team to Utah. I, I don't know a ton of Sam's background, uh, but maybe you can uh, yeah, oh, sorry. enlighten yeah, me I, a little I, bit. <laughs> I apologize. I it was, he's, yeah. uh, he's the founder of Sambo's Restaurant, which uh, is, uh, shall we say, uh, uh, perhaps more culturally out of tune uh, than any sort of... Uh, uh, gotcha. I did not <laughs> rest, know that. Restaurant wow. chain that could ever have been. And some of that, I think, even uh, sort of... Uh, uh, there's a bigger story there, right? And I, I, was it, you know, outright racism? Is it uh, tone deafness? Is it, uh, who knows, but uh, it's more of a past tense. Called outright racism, I think. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, and and, um, a past tense, I think, because I think there's only one of those locations left now. But that's, that's, uh, I think really to your point though, right? This is, um, these are seen as business opportunities. And we get into this in a lot of our sort of deep uh, dig into, into all this stuff, right? The, you know, th- there are lots of different themes that sort of evolve, right? Take, sticking it to the man, like the ABA and these challenger leagues, right? Because there's, there's bigger markets, and but that's rooted in business. Uh, big boys and their toys, right? You know, there's these are oh, yeah. offs a lot of times, right? Uh, and people Wait till like, we get to USFL, <laughs> yeah, right. So, um, yeah. but it it stands to reason. But but I, you know, now as we circle around Pete Maravich, right? It's it's clear that Badstone and company, right, recognize that. Um, they have to stand out. They've got to make a splash. And maybe a little bit about Maravich, because this guy was, um, I mean, a wizard is is maybe too uh, gentle a term uh, in terms of his capability as a basketball player. I mean, I, I, in many respects, I think uh, underrepresented, I guess, in the pantheon of, of NBA greats. Of course, he's well-recognized Hall of Famer and all that stuff. But, you know... No, I completely agree with that, and and I think that part of it is that that's just the era he played in. There's not a gr- lot of great footage, but I would encourage anybody listening, if you've never done it, just go to YouTube and search Pete Maravich highlights because you won't know what you're watching. I mean, this guy was like Allen Iverson, Manu Ginobili. He was just this wiggly. He, you know, he would never do something uh, straightforward where a more complicated, flashier thing would work. In fact, that you know later on that ended up kind of causing his career-ending injury was him trying a a ridiculous behind-the-back, between-the-legs pass and falling and crushing his knee. But, like, he he played. Like, he he played with joy and artistry and just in a way where it almost didn't matter who won or lost the game. It was more about putting on a show, which is why he really was a perfect fit for this expansion franchise in New Orleans because 
you know, this is a city that likes likes a good show. Well, yeah, and the, the team name, right, which I guess inspires, you know, collective or team-oriented sort of improvisation. I mean, that's what jazz is all about when you see it in performed, right? You know, if you're looking for a master of improvisation, Maravich, I mean, among other talents, right, to your point, behind-the-back passes and no looks, and, and he doesn't sort of strike you just, you know, generally sort of standing there warming up like he's going to be this you know, this guy who's going to kind of, you know, leave you in the dust, right? But he it, he was a huge scoring presence and and obviously a, a great attraction. And it's it's pretty clear, right, that uh, with the LSU uh, connection, right, that he was, and arguably this is a little bit of a taste of what the USFL sort of recognized too, was sort of the idea of latching on to regionally important and uh, standout talent, you know, at the collegiate level, right, to kind of transfer that into... Uh, marketing and then some goodness uh, as a brand new team seeking to st- stick out in the market well, gets going right and so but the player wise they leverage the, the the farm if you will right even before they started to get Maravich almost uh, putting their entire future on the, his back even before they play the first game. Yeah, I mean you could make the case that their attempt to make a splash at the beginning was what cost the team in the long run and. They did it later when uh, they paired Pete Maravich with uh, Gail Goodrich, and they traded a slew of uh, first-round picks, one of which ended up becoming Magic Johnson. I mean, can you imagine if Magic Johnson had wound up in New Orleans and not L.A.? So, you know, in in an effort to make a splash, uh, they probably hurt their long-term prospects because, you know, even though they had a couple of big moments in the Superdome where they were setting... NBA record crowds, usually when somebody like Dr. J or Kareem came to town, but still because of the capacity of the stadium, they could fill that thing, you know, and uh, just no other arena in the NBA could compete with the Superdome. But, you know, as the years went on and the team got worse and Pete got hurt, all of those draft picks that they traded away, suddenly they didn't have a, a bench to build up. They didn't have a future to invest in. And so, you know, in 79, uh, with flagging attendance in the Dome and Pete, you know, gone. And uh, that, you know, that ultimately kind of shot him in the foot, I think. You know, I, I wonder if they had tried to build things more with the long term in mind, if the, if the Jazz would still be here. I mean, that's kind of up to the whims of the ownership, you know. But uh, it is an interesting question. If they hadn't done that, if they hadn't gone for the local draw, uh, would they have actually been able to stick around if they'd been a little bit more patient with team building? Well, it, it's also, yeah, I mean, certainly too. I mean, in many respects for those four or five seasons, right? Uh, as Maravich went, so did the Jazz, right? And there's only so much one player can do, if you will. I'm not saying there weren't other players, but put it in perspective for those, you know, sort of uh, following along here. I mean, the they they traded for Maravich to the Hawks or for, with the Hawks for two first round draft picks, three second round picks and one third round pick over the, the the next three years. And this is before they even began sort of playing, right? And you know, it doesn't mean that there aren't other quality players to be found out there, but uh, you know, when when Maravich, I mean the, the cursory, you know, uh historian would kind of look at uh you know, sort of the the last season of their time in New Orleans when Maravich was really uh, you know, his A shell of himself. Well, well, yeah, and his knee injuries were really taking hold, right? I mean, in many respects, it's like, okay, well, the, the star player's not doing well. Uh, that probably just added to – and the fact that they really never were that great overall on the, on, on the court in terms of playoffs appearances or any of that kind of stuff. I mean, 
But but in terms of they also have facility issues, right? Because you're mentioning the Superdome, <laughs> gigantic, right? But yeah. you know, maybe their adventure is sort of into. I mean, they started in basically the Loyola Fieldhouse, yeah, which um, I believe was also the Bucks also played there. So yeah, and so they started out, you know, in this kind of decrepit gym. Um, one of the people I interviewed for the story I wrote years ago, Bob Remy, had this amazing anecdote about. Uh, the Blazers coming to town and Bill Walton just with this forlorn look in his face, you know, looking at this just falling apart gym. Now, Pete loved it. He called it the snake pit because it was just really this kind of old school college um, college gym. Um, but yeah, they have facility issues, but that's, you know, it wasn't just that they started in this college gym. It was also because in New Orleans, Mardi Gras dominates the you know first quarter of the year calendar and so what would happen is that when all of the mardi gras crews and so down here you have these kind of social clubs called crews k-r-e-w-e-s that um you know have this royal season and they anoint their kings and queens and princes and princesses and then they have their parades all throughout the carnival season well, all of those events that are related to Mardi Gras need venues. And because Mardi Gras is an older tradition in New Orleans than basketball, what would happen, and still happens, as a matter of fact, with the Pelicans, uh, is that when they need auditorium space, the teams leave town and go on these long road trips. The same thing happens in San Antonio with the rodeo. Um, but as a result, you know, for a fledgling franchise, to already be facing, you know, in the middle of the basketball season, having to get out of town so that all the Mardi Gras crews, carnival crews could have their balls um, was definitely a challenge. And probably the, you know, this basketball season coinciding with carnival has never really helped uh, pro basketball here just because carnival consumes the city in, in every possible way. And, uh, you know, in fact, I always enjoy going to Pelicans games in the middle of carnival season because tickets are cheaper, um, so you can get good seats. But you know, that, so that's always been a challenge for basketball down here. Uh, but they also did start of uh, started to play in the what was then called the Louisiana Superdome as well, though, right? I mean, there were. I, I'm guessing you may know better, or maybe it's so we put it out there is. I guess there was maybe a limited amount of games that were played over time. And, and did they ever f- fully move to the, the Superdome over time? Or did they largely still play in, in at Loyola? And the, and the, the No, they, they started in the Municipal Auditorium. Then they moved up to the Loyola Fieldhouse. And then I want to say, uh, I think it was 1975 was the year they were able to finally move in to the Dome. And that did become the home of the, the Jazz. Now, I, I may be missing some moments where they had to go play somewhere else, but... After the dome opened, that was where they played. Yeah, but going from one extreme to the other, right? I, I thought I'd read. Oh, yeah. I had read somewhere that like at Loyola, they uh, the players' association had, uh, I guess, had made a stink about sort of the conditions there that they actually because it was raised, I think, and they had to put a net. Yep. Around it to oh yeah. Prep yeah, players yeah. from falling <laughs> off the court into the stands and stuff. I, 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 you know, I mean. Yeah, I mean yeah. they had to they had to put yeah they said you can't do this anymore. Players are getting hurt, so they sent uh, Bob Lanier, who was the union president. Uh, you know, giant, six foot eleven, two hundred fifty pound guy, and and literally to test the nets that they strung up around the basketball court, Lanier would get a running start and jump into the net to make sure that it would catch him if you you know went tumbling over the court, and that was you know, 
that that was basically their permission to play was you know getting clearance from Bob Lanier running into this net. But I mean those that were those were the digs you know they had come kind of out of the gate and uh, not exactly the professional environment you'd expect. So I mean I guess aside maybe from the obvious reasons or maybe they were just obvious reasons why why not stick it out beyond you know why did the team ultimately sort of leave and, and arguably maybe even why Utah which is maybe just an imponderable. Um, you know, I think that part of it was flagging um, attendance, but I also think that um, Sam had Sam Battistone had business interests um, in the West. He was originally from California, and you know, I think there was also some anecdote about his wife having connections to Salt Lake City. I mean, it was really the guy had the money; he wanted to move, and so he just took the team out June nineteen seventy nine. Now, Utah Jazz, the worst fit of a location and a team nickname of all time. <laughs> I still think that Jazz belongs here, but that's another story. I, I, yeah, I can't, I can't agree more. I, I just honestly, I still, and I, I, you know, I'm sure there are people who might understand the reasons as to why that name still sticks. I mean, I, I, I think I understand Utah because at least the ABA had had uh, a team in, in Salt Lake and actually was quite successful. It was a fan favorite for, for, for many years. But yeah, I, the the jazz nickname it just completely, yet it sticks. I, I it's a, it's to me, that's <laughs> an ongoing imponderable. Um, do, yeah. does, do you think it sticks in? I, I, and this sort of leads into a bigger question. But do you think that sticks in the craw fish? They get it uh, <laughs> uh, of New Orleans fans, uh, or does the? Well, you know, it's yeah, it's it's funny you say that because uh, I remember when. Uh, the, they were bringing the uh, they were going to rebrand the Hornets, um, you know, after they came back to uh, New Orleans. And there was a whole conversation around what they might name the basketball team. And, um, I, you know, I'm forgetting some of the other alternatives that were thrown out there. I'm, I'm also confusing the other thing where they renamed the minor league baseball team, the baby cakes, which that was a whole other thing. But anyway, you know, it was why can't we just be the jazz? And. They landed on Pelicans, which was kind of interesting because that used to be the minor league baseball team. And a lot of old timers down here did not like that they took the baseball team's name because there's so many people here. When you say New Orleans Pelicans, they think of the old baseball team that hasn't been here since 1961. Um, so, you know, it, the Jazz, you know, it would be so easy. My proposal has always been that Utah could become the Arches. You know, Utah Arch, Arc Shot, I think that'd be a great name. And then they give the jazz back to New Orleans and everybody's happy. I think Stockton and Malone ruined it, though, because people have so much nostalgia for the 90s jazz. They just can't imagine the Utah franchise with a different name because of that association. Uh, but anyway, long story short, you know, I, jazz was always the best fit here. But, you know, we've got the Pelicans, which is a little bit better than the Hornets. Uh, but, yeah, it is, it is a shame that, you know, that that team because it this for basketball it's a name that fits so well here but yeah i think some of it had to do with the fact that the the uh, the, the shifting of the franchise uh, was uh, so relatively close to the 79 start of the uh, nba season that they didn't have time to change it even though i guess uh, the proverbial uh, uh, name the team contests and all that kind of stuff were probably <laughs> in the air but uh, yeah the fact that it still sticks is to me is a curiosity and yeah, there's all these kind of vestigial, uh, you know, the Los Angeles Lakers. I mean, they were the Lakers because Minneapolis, you know, Minnesota has all the lakes. So, you know, it's kind of one of those quirks of uh, pro sports naming. 
But it's clear that, uh, you know, the, the jazz is history, right? And and so I guess before we sort of uh, move on to some of the other sports stuff uh, there in New Orleans, I, I guess, so one of the things we constantly try to sort of dig into is where either officially and maybe even unofficially does the history, I guess, of that New Orleans version of the jazz kind of live on, right? Now, I clearly, from a stats perspective and an NBA logo and registered trademarks kind of thing, all of that sort of New Orleans part of the history is is resident in the Utah Jazz and with the NBA. But there's the, you know, there's the sort of unofficial sort of uh, rooting, I guess, of, of the Maravich years and and in getting this franchise's start that I'm just wondering if the Hornets and or Pelicans have ever, I don't know, embraced even informally, or is it just truly sort of in the dustbin of his history and, and there's no desire to kind of revisit that blip in time, I guess. Yeah, sure. I mean, I don't think there's ever been, and it partially because of the awkwardness of the Utah Jazz still existing. You know, I would say that one of the big things with the the New Orleans Jazz is that the team colors were Mardi Gras colors. So the green, yellow, and, and purple colors. And so the Pelicans and um, I believe the Hornets did this too. During carnival season, January, February, for their home games, they wear the carnival colors. They have the alternative uniforms uh, that do kind of harken back to the jazz color scheme. Um, so, so there is that. Uh, you know, and frankly, I think uh, I'm trying to remember if uh, I think that when the Hornets were here, they did. Did they retire Maravich's jersey in New Orleans? I want to say they did. But, I mean, that was, uh, yeah, it was in 2002. Um, That was while they were still in Charlotte. Yeah. So, anyway, suffice it to say that, like, the jazz imprint on basketball in New Orleans has kind of faded away. You can still get T-shirts at some of the little screen uh, screen printing shops in New Orleans that have the retro logo on it. I actually have one myself. But um, in terms of the franchise paying homage to the jazz days, not not so much other than the carnival uniforms that they wear. Yeah, it's my understanding that uh, Maravich's number uh, not only was retired by, well, it was retired by the Utah Jazz. Right. It, were, it was retired by the New Orleans uh, when they were Pelican, uh, when they became the, the Hornets. No, it's actually, well, I you know, that's a good question. That part I don't know. I don't, yeah. It was as Pelicans or as Hornets. And obviously, it was well, it's not so obviously, it was also retired by the Hawks. So that's yeah. interesting, right? So <laughs> if, if it is the Hornets slash Pelicans, right, that's an interesting oddity, right? Because he never played for that. Right. Of his- and I'm pretty sure it's the number seven jazz uniform that's Correct. in the rafters. And yeah, they didn't, you know, try to retrofit. That would have been awkward. But it, um, it, does, yeah. it, it does speak to the fact, though, that there is a bit of this. And this is kind of why I sort of generally asked the question. And again, I'll throw it out there to our audience is sort of this informal history creep, if you will, that uh, of ownership of that that era, right? So, I mean, we talked about the name of Utah Jazz, right? The, the It's so uniquely, I would argue, New Orleans, right? Even though that in in the lineage, it, it goes, it's it's it should be part of, of Utah's legacy, but why not also, or perhaps separately, be part of the basketball legacy that continues to exist in the form of the Pelicans' former Hornets? I think that's a really good point, and I think that was something in in my article that I was trying to unite was the fact that New Orleans has a very rich basketball history. It's just very fragmented. You had the these older teams, the Bucks, 
the Jazz, uh, the Pride, the women's team. And then you even had these great anecdotes like in the 80s. Again, you know, New Orleans didn't have a basketball team. It's kind of like the thing with football and, and baseball where they would host these exhibitions because they knew they had an audience. Uh, so in the 80s, uh, the Atlanta Hawks, who had a hard time drawing fans at times, uh, I think they'd hosted a dozen games in New Orleans as the home team, in quotes, uh, at, at the University of New Orleans Lakefront Arena. Now, what happened interestingly there, and the arena is still there, is that the Boston Celtics, I think this was 86, I could be, the year may be off, but the Celtics came to play the Hawks in New Orleans, and Larry Bird had one of the best games of his career. He had 60 points at the Lakefront Arena in New Orleans, uh, and it's just one of these little blips of history that, you know, because the Hawks decided to host this homestand in New Orleans and New Orleans was missing having pro basketball, you get this Larry Bird highlight of his career that happens in New Orleans. Um, and so it's just, you know, little things like that. So we have this fragmented basketball history that when you put it all together is very fascinating. It's very distinctly New Orleans and that it's very complicated It involves loss and tragedy within the case of Pete Maravich but when you stitch it all together and then you, of course you have the Hornets leaving town for Oklahoma City after Hurricane Katrina but when you piece it all together yeah the uniforms change the team names change but the history does kind of have this common thread uh that's that's really fascinating and I think that the Pelicans one thing that they could do because you know the name is not very old but in tapping into this local history of basketball showing that we do have a tradition because i think that's something that the pelicans have trouble with their branding is that there is no history of new orleans pelicans basketball here like people don't see the logo and the team and and have nostalgia but there is nostalgia here you just have to figure out how to weave it in yeah and and in your article for sb nation called a streetcar named basketball which you know we'll, we'll tout at the uh, in in our pre-rolls and all that kind of stuff. It is very rich. It's, it's a, not only is it a, a well-written article, but there's a great slider in there of, of the visuals that can show you sort of the past and the present. And it's a really good juxtaposition. But yeah, I mean, you know, I, you'd think that, uh, that there would be as much effort to kind of tap into that, that wellspring and maybe help sort of surface some of the more undiscovered or unremembered parts of it. And, I, you know, some of this is nostalgia, right? But, but it's also, frankly, it's history and history is different than nostalgia, right? Nostalgia sort of is kind of sort of, you know, wistfully remembering and, and maybe sort of, you know, marinating in it. Whereas history is kind of like what, what, what you know, not only happened, but also sort of what came out of it and or what can we do better or to avoid uh, doing again in the future, right? And, you know, I, again, this is obviously a very small little part of, of overall history, but we've seen this time and time again in our various explorations. A lot of the same mistakes uh, seem to happen generation after generation, whether it's business ideas or folly or building construction or or, or business, you know, uh, financial shenanigans and arrogance, all of it, right? This keeps coming back over and over again, right? And, you know, uh, Pete Maravich in particular and the the, the, the roots of, of professional basketball in the NBA uh, and then even building on the ABA. I mean, you could make the argument that the Pelicans might want to tap into some of the old Bucks experience and, and root it as, Hoops in 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 New Orleans has been been here, and uh, we're going to rem remember and or introduce you to it for the first time, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like I said earlier in our conversation, the Bucks were the first and only uh, pro sports team. Uh, pro, I'm sorry, pro basketball team in New Orleans to play for a championship, and 
I don't think anybody knows that down here. You know, we you know celebrate the Saints Super Bowl, but don't realize that you know the New Orleans Buccaneers played for an ABA title back in the back in the '60s. So yeah, like like you said, I think there there is pride and there's history and there's lessons to be learned, and you know I think that we could do a better job embracing it. All right, so let's uh, let's uh, return to the the women's side of it because you did make a, sort of a a, a large uh, uh, hint here uh, at. The fact that the women's game actually is probably even more uh, uh, unknown or, or, or lightly discovered in terms of its uh, its roots uh, in New Orleans. And I want to sort of get into uh, the WBL, the Women's Professional Basketball League of the late 70s. We had um, one of our earliest guests was uh, Molly Kazmer, nay Molly Bolin, who was uh, known as Machine Gun back in the day, played mm. <laughs> Iowa, Iowa Cornets. And, wow. uh, you know, this is a league that uh, uh, can very much be a blind spot, even amongst uh, WNBA folks. But this was, uh, depending on the city and the market that you were in, uh, was a, a pretty significant blip. We obviously got into the Iowa story because there's nothing else uh, professionally in Iowa, both then and and and, and certainly now. But the idea of doing women's basketball, even after the departure of the NBA men's jazz, uh, maybe wasn't such a head scratcher when you maybe consider just how deeply popular and um, uh, originating, if you will, women's basketball was in this area. Yeah, I mean, you know, you can go way back, you know, James Naismith invented his rules of basketball in 1891. And, you know, he was a gym teacher. And so what you had happen after that is that a lot of gym teachers around the country uh, were trying to create their own adaptation of Naismith's rules. And so you had this woman named Clara Bayer who taught at Newcomb College, was a women's college in New Orleans. Um, I think later got absorbed by Tulane. But anyway, uh, she invented rules for the women's game that were slightly altered, but um, they, I believe she published them in 1895, and it's considered like the first rule book of women's basketball. Um, she called it something different. She called it Newcomb Basket. Um, she later published a revision to the rules where it was they were referring it to as basketball. But, you know, so, you know, basketball, especially the early basketball of Naismith, was being played here in New Orleans um, early in the 1900s. And um, so there was this tradition that kind of laid a groundwork for when the WBL came into being. Um, you had the New Orleans pride, and, and they didn't come in until the second season. But, again, going back to so, so much of this revolves around the Superdome. It's kind of fascinating now that I'm thinking about it, but have this big arena. Let's get some sporting events in there. And uh, so the I want to say their first game in the Superdome, the Pride's first game, they drew like 8,500 people, which was really good at the time. I mean, it was better than what the Jazz were averaging by the time they were leading. Um, and it was one of uh, the highest crowds that the kind of up and coming league had ever seen. So it was kind of like this opportunity. Again, you talk to the business thing. Um, you know, we've got this huge arena, we've got this interest in the sport, people are missing basketball in New Orleans, and then the pride come in and uh they really are are starting to draw some great crowds at the uh Superdome. Yeah, and uh our exploration with Molly uh kind of and this this has played out what we've seen in, in perspective pro volleyball league too is the olympics right the idea of having some uh national exposure on the olympic level would be 
not only sort of a good uh, anticipatory kind of activity, 1980 uh, in, in Moscow, but also then the halo of that with the expectation that the U.S. women's team would do well. And not unlike soccer today and, and all these other sort of sports where you want to draft off of that kind of success. But obviously the boycott of, of the Moscow Olympics uh, kind of put a put a, uh, a gigantic uh, brakes on that, right? And it, I, I think it's probably too simplistic to say that's why the pride wind up leaving, but certainly the WBL uh, lost a lot of its footing and its uh, economic uh, yeah, opportunities. Yeah, it, it folded the year after that. And, and yeah, like you said, I think it's a little bit too simplistic to say that that boycott was what spelled the end of, of women's professional basketball at the time. But, you know, it was definitely a factor because – I think they were counting on the exposure of the world stage. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, there's a really good book I could recommend called Mad Seasons by Kara Porter um, that really just dives into the four years of the WBL in such great depth. And, and it talks a lot about uh, the business aspect and the Olympic aspect and, you know, just, just why it, it didn't work out. Yes, we've been trying to get Kara for a couple of years now, and uh, to know, uh, to know, uh, I, I'm not sure. Maybe I got the wrong email address and stuff. But uh, but Kara, we'd love to, to get into more of the WBL's uh, adventures, the Dannon Twins, for example, and the New York Stars, uh, etc. Lots of lots of things to explore there. Well, okay, but so, but basketball obviously uh, wound up coming back, and uh, and arguably for uh, for good. But I guess before we sort of uh, round up our, our chat here, because we could, Lord knows, we could get into the Hornets and the Pelicans and all that kind of stuff. You did mention sort of at the outset this uh, USFL thing, and I think it's probably a good time to sort of bring it up because at least chronologically, we're now, you know, in the early 1980s, which is when uh, Mr. Dixon, I guess, sort of found more newfound, I guess, uh, uh, belief that an idea of doing a spring professional football league might actually play. And who was sort of part of all that mix uh, was the market of New Orleans. Now, not directly in, in the very earliest days, but certainly Dixon, I, I'm guessing, had some eyes on New Orleans as a potential franchise location. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the whole idea of it was conceived by Dixon here in New Orleans, like we said earlier, way back in 1961. And, you know, what was really a pivotal moment for them was uh, the emergence of cable television. So, you had the NFL that had this established presence on CBS, NBC, ABC that was kind of boxing out, uh, you know, the the broadcast space for any sort of alternative league. But ESPN launches in 1979, and Dixon and his son Shay, uh, Dave Dixon and his son Shay, really see this window of opportunity to go back to the well with their USFL idea, and so that kind of. They did a, a fall, and we talk about this in the collections uh, exhibit called Crescent City Sport, uh, closed a couple months ago. But um, they did a viability study to see, hey, would fans be interested in a spring football league? And, you know, the result of the study was positive. And so they start to, to go around and find rich. A lot of them were real estate investors. Donald Trump was one of the people they reached out to. And just to see who would be interested in, uh, in investing in a team in this USFL. Yeah, and the Breakers obviously a very intriguing franchise because they they were the only team of the uh, the the leagues, I guess it was three seasons, right? That um, were domiciled in three separate cities. But that whole uh, because they started their life in uh, in Boston, and then they went to New Orleans. So I I, I wonder how much Dixon's influence was uh, part of that mixture uh, to bring them uh, back into New Orleans. And frankly, obviously, it didn't. 
it didn't go that well, right? If they were already off for for Portland, Oregon, of all places, uh, after just that right. season. Well, you know, I think that there there was always a goal to have a team here in New Orleans, and and Joe Cannizzaro ended up being the the guy with the money to uh, to bring the Breakers down here from Boston, and and they you know they actually started out really well. There's this whole interesting story about Marcus Dupree. Um, you could get into the whole amateur athletics thing. Mar- Marcus was an underclassman and uh, had actually dropped out of school and had this kind of winding path. But he had been this sensation in Mississippi, like one of like the first, you know, Herschel Walker was another one of these just blue chip college football players that tested the waters uh, in the USFL and uh, was actually very good in- until he, uh, uh, I think he blew out his knee and. Uh, but he, uh, Dupree was very good and, and the breakers weren't really that terrible. In fact, they were better than the saints when they first started and, uh, they drew something like 40 some thousand people at the Superdome. I mean, there were reasons to expect this spring league to be a a successful alternative to the NFL. And for a lot of reasons, greed, overambition, um, (laughs) it, it didn't work out that way, but, uh, you know, from the outset, and, and kind of going back to the whole jazz and the Pete Maravich thing, they kind of mortgaged the future of that jazz franchise to draw in this big, flat, splashy player. And in the USFL, they started out by setting these strict um, caps on salary caps for the teams, but it was hard to enforce. And all of these wealthy people who kind of had their shiny objects went out and just spent, spent, spent on players trying to poach people and, and, they ended up blowing their budgets out and they had like major financial issues basically from the outset uh, as a result. Yeah. And the, the interesting thing, too, is that and it's obviously a bigger part of the USFL story, which we've gone deep on a lot of different uh, angles. Jeff Perlman in particular. Great book. Football for a buck. Absolutely. Yeah. And and when the team came to New Orleans, and obviously they had uh, stadium issues uh, in Boston, you know, which has always been uh, a problem for challenger leagues up there. Uh, that was very well supported. I mean, I think their first game uh, in the Dome, they got uh, more than 45,000 people, and they averaged, I think, over 30 by the end of the season. A- and you would think that, the, well, okay, now we're on to something. But the whole move to the fall, right, was the next season, right, was th- there was just no way, right, that n- this New Orleans Breakers team was ever going to be in the same league, literally and figuratively, as the Saints, right? And that just doomed the franchise in New Orleans, for God's sakes, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was a that was a major, major. I mean, for the whole league, but the Breakers especially. Like the shift to the fall was just a, a death knell for sure. All right. Well, so let's round uh, third base here to kind of completely strain analogies here. Um, <laughs> one one question I, I wanted to, I should have asked you uh, when we were talking about the pride and the women's game is why do you think uh, perhaps the WNBA hasn't uh, domiciled the team, especially given that the Hornets slash Pelicans are now sort of firmly ensconced. And given the history of the women's game, uh, is from what you can tell in your brief stay thus far in the New Orleans area, is there any appetite or, you know, uh, logical, it seems, interest for the women's game to return at that level? Oh, my gosh. I'd love to see it. I grew up in Indiana, so I've always followed the Indiana Fever, which have had a lot of success. And, and, you know, Indianapolis is, relatively speaking, a smaller market as well. But they've had a lot of success with the Fever, both on the court and in terms of, you know, people coming out and supporting the team. And now Tamika Catchings is, like, involved with the front office of the Pacers. So I think there's a, 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 you know, a blueprint 
to have a successful WNBA team in a smaller market. I think that, you know, you said the strong football to the pe- uh, foothold that the Pelicans have. And I think that I'd like to think that there is a strong foothold. I think that the Anthony Davis saga definitely frightened a lot of people into thinking, you know, could we lose the team again? You know, David Stern, you know, to his credit, kept basketball in New Orleans and Adam Silver, like everybody makes the commitment that they, they don't want to see basketball leave New Orleans again. Um, but there's always this kind of, you know, our attendance has, hasn't always been great down here for the Pelicans and the team is now kind of, it's an exciting young team. Now they got Zion, they won the Zion sweepstakes. I think that that kind of maybe changed the trajectory of basketball in New Orleans because when Davis demanded the trade, it was like really doom doomsday scenario down here where it was like, you know. Gail Benson is the owner of the team, and she says she's committed to keeping the team down here, but they all say that. Who really knows? Um, I'd like to think that I like having pro basketball here, but I say all that to say that there is all there has always been this sense of instability with basketball in New Orleans, so the idea of adding another franchise here probably scares some people because they wonder if we can't even sell out Pelicans games you know, how can we fill out games in the summer with, you know, a WNBA team? And I think they should try it. I think that, the, I, you know, I don't know if the WNBA has ever, you know, how many teams? I think it's 12 teams now, you know, have considered expansion beyond those 12 that, that do so well. But, you know, I mean, I'd love to see it. I think that, you know, there's nothing better in New Orleans in the summertime to be indoors and in air conditioning. So, you know, I think that they should give it serious thought um, because, you know, it's fun. The game, the WNBA game is really fun. And I think New Orleans has the history and, and ought to really consider it. No, I agree, especially given the that 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 history, um, yeah. which is, you know, uniquely uh, uh that of New Orleans. And again, I, this all speaks to, again, sort of uh, how much uh, can you uh, sort of resurrect, if you will, and or embrace uh, from the past to kind of help propel uh, down the road of the future. Right, so here's here's my last sort of general question. This is more of, of New Orleans as market question, right? So you've been there. You're you're not a native, right? But you're and you sort of relatively fresh eyes still. And you've got that sort of journalistic uh, you know, arched eyebrow sensibility to you, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, as you're well trained, and you uh, always train to ask questions, and 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 then ask more questions, and try to dig deeper. What 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 is your assessment of New Orleans today and going forward as a market for viability in pro sports? Right, you've got the NFL's Saints, which are you know, just short of religion down there when it comes to that. Time. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you've got the Pelicans, which are, you know, you mentioned not sort of the most established nor historically rooted franchise, right? So there's a little bit of perceived shakiness there. But then there is nothing else, if you will, at the top tier pro level, despite some attempts over over time. As a market, does it have enough diversity? Does it have enough business endeavors and, and, and corporate dollars and and frankly, interest from the community perspective, right? Because, you know, there are lots of other things that people go to New Orleans for versus sports. And you already mentioned one of them. Mardi Gras is basically two-ish months worth of distraction right there. So is it viable for not only the Pelicans, but even more pro stuff? Or or maybe is it sort of at its max where, where we currently stand today? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. And um, it's, it's a hard one for me to answer. I think that I have a little bit of a bias here. You know, I actually 
like I said earlier, I, I grew up in Indiana and I grew up in, you know, a small sports market. I was a fan of Reggie Miller and the Indiana Pacers. So I used to run a blog called Small Market Bias and where I would kind of get into the analytics of like how these small market franchises, particularly in basketball, can succeed and the Spurs and the Memphis Grizzlies and like, you know, some of these teams that really have kind of embedded themselves into their communities, even though, I mean, Memphis is an even smaller market than we are, I think. Um, so I think that part of it is success on the court or on the field breeds uh, fan enthusiasm, brings money in. You know, I think that if we're willing to invest in a winner, um, and I, I'm frankly, I'm not really sure entirely yet if that's what's going on with the Pelicans. I'd like to think that uh, the new leadership there has interest in actually making the Pelicans a winner. But, I, you know, I think that a lot of it is not so much about the market size, but how well a team can be run. Because of the Pelicans, let's say Zion Williamson becomes an MVP candidate. And, you know, like look at Milwaukee. They're selling out games. They have Giannis Antetokounmpo. Like, I think that success on the floor can breed the enthusiasm and the business interest. You know, do I think that we can expand beyond our current pro sports? You know, I... I don't know. I, you know, I really don't know. You know, the New, New Orleans proper is not huge, but we have a pretty big metro area when you, when you bring in the burbs. And I think that it's a great city for sports fans. And a lot of people do travel here from Mardi Gras, but there's a lot of people who live here year round who are sports fans who I think, you know, love pro sports. I think that the Pelicans are often the example of why we couldn't do it because their attendance isn't always that great. But that's also because the team hasn't always been very good. And I think success, you know, can make a huge difference there. So, you know, I'm kind of I'm splitting the difference here. You know, I'm saying maybe, maybe not. It, but I do think if you make the proper investment in the long term uh, strategies with the teams, uh, it's definitely possible. Yeah, and uh, no disrespect to uh, the uh, New Orleans Gold or the NOLA Gold of the uh, Major League Rugby circuit, and uh, you know I suspect that uh, the Jesters. We've got a, the Jesters is a is a, a lower tier soccer team here, so. <laughs> Absolutely. The national, uh, the uh, NPSL. And uh, so there's no doubt. I mean, and and there's lots of, uh, if you will, quote unquote, smaller markets. I, um, you know, but there's so much rich history there that, that, that you know, I think of it from branding. Uh, we talked about baseball's history. I mean, there's there's a lot of sports history in New Orleans that uh, could easily be tapped into if you're if you're looking for that. And, but, and we just lost a baseball team. The the Baby Cakes, the uh, terrible name, they just left for uh Shoot, I can't remember what state they moved to, but you know that was our AAA baseball team. They were a, a Marlins affiliate, uh, and you know, so we had a baseball team as of like two years ago, and now they're gone. And uh, you know, so again, it's that that that's just another piece of this conversation. Is you know, we lost a minor league sports team, and you know, but we have the history. You know, I, I think it's a good city for sports. Um, it's a good city for big events. You know, there's a reason why they host all-star games and Super Bowls in New Orleans, because it's a great place to be for a sporting event. Well, New Orleans' baseball losses, Wichita's uh, Wichita, game, that's right. the, the wind surge. So there, there's a name for you, the Wichita wind <laughs> surge. All right, well, let us surge into some promotional goodness for you. Uh, why don't you remind our audience about uh, the article that we hinted at, uh, the stuff that you've been doing <laughs> on the historical front, and maybe... Perhaps uh, some other stories that are rattling around in your brain and perhaps where those might uh, be found someday. 
Oh my goodness. Well, uh, you know, SB Nation, I don't even know that the article that, that was kind of the crux of this conversation was 2014. So I'm sure if, if you Google New Orleans Jazz and SB Nation, you'll find it and I'm sure they'll love the clicks. Currently, I'm working at the Historic New Orleans Collection. That's hnoc.org. You can learn about a lot, a lot about what the museum is doing even right now during the pandemic. And, you know, as a personal plug, I, I'm a book editor. This is not in the realm of sports, but I'm currently editing uh, a graphic novel uh, about Oscar Dunn, who was America's first black lieutenant governor during Reconstruction. And that book will be out in the spring of 2021. All things go well, and uh, it's going to be a really great book. So I'm going to plug something that's completely not sports related because that's been occupying much of my time right now. Uh, and can we follow you on uh, on social media as well? Or are you not active, or what's? Your... Oh yeah, you can. Uh, you know, I'm on Twitter. It's in Weldon. Uh, I'm not going to say I'm the best follow, but you can certainly find me there. And if you have any questions about the jazz or sports or the museum or anything else, feel free to ask me. I'd, I'd love to hear from you. Fantastic. Thank you to Nick and uh, plenty more stories to get into in the history of pro sports in and around New Orleans. The article uh, that you need to start with is uh, at SBNation.com. It's called A Streetcar Named Basketball. It's a great uh, article, good writing, uh, some great graphical images. You can, there's a slider there. You can sort of see the old basketball and the new basketball as it's juxtaposed with today's Pelicans. It's a great story. SBNation.com. Just search up a streetcar named Basketball by our guest, Nick Weldon. You can also find his writings and his doings at the historic New Orleans Collection. Yeah, it's a museum. It's a research center. Uh, they're publishers as well. You can find out uh, what they do and what Nick does there, too, at H-N-O-C. H as in Henry. N-O as in New Orleans. C dot org. H-N-O-C dot org. The historic New Orleans Collection. They had a... Uh, a recent uh, effort devoted to uh, what they call Crescent City Sport, the stories of courage and change, and that's it's worth uh, seeking out online as well. And let's see what else. Uh, Nick can also be found on Twitter at N Weldon. The letter N is a Nancy Weldon. Follow him there for all kinds of fun stuff, New Orleans, and hopefully some more sports stuff to come and otherwise. Uh, on Twitter, while you're there, why don't you uh, follow us? Why don't you give us a little uh, click of uh, a followness, if that's a word? We're at Good Seats Still. Uh, you can follow us on Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. It's all one word. Uh, if you like the Facebook, you're in a dwindling crowd, but uh, uh, those who choose to communicate there, by all means, you'll find a little website devoted to us there uh, where we post some photos and stuff each and every week. Follow us there if you'd like. The website, of course, is GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com. If you don't remember any of that stuff, that's the sort of hub of all of our old episodes. Uh, they're all available for you free of charge. Stream them, download them, do whatever you want. Uh, you can also find our email link there, but uh, you can do that directly. We're at hello at GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com. Pretty simple. And uh, what else? Uh, you want a weekly email newsletter from us? Well, we send one out every, nah, usually every Sunday. Sunday afternoon, Sunday evening, depends. And that literally is just a little heads up as to what the episode of the week is going to be. And you'd be sort of kind of the first to be in the know. So why not uh, search up that link and uh, give us your name and uh, email address and we'll add you to the club. Why not? Uh, let's see. What else? Our pal Jerry Payne. Can't do this show without him. Thank you, kind sir. Jerry Payne, Audio Excellence. He's the man. 
you want some audio help for your podcast or, or professional broadcasting uh, endeavors, uh, just uh, send us a note. We'll get you hooked up with Jerry. He's uh, he's good people and he knows what he's doing. And uh, God, he's, you know, I guess he's the only one who's stuck around with us for almost four years now. And I don't know. I don't know if it's a great paying gig uh, for him, but uh, we certainly appreciate his dedication uh, each and every week to the show. So um, thank you, Jer. And uh, what else? I guess that's kind of it. Uh, I appreciate uh, all of your cards and letters, as they say. Uh, keep them coming. Please, indeed, uh, do all the right things to stay safe. Uh, the times are, are crazy. Uh, they continue to be so, it seems. And um, I don't know. We have our ups and downs. Uh, some days are better than others. But uh, one day at a time, we'll all get through this. And uh, if we're smart about it, perhaps even a little sooner than that. Until next week, thanks for uh, joining us. And uh, hopefully we've got another fun-filled episode for you. Uh, coming up in a mere seven or so days. Take care, everybody. Love you. Bye. Do you know what it means to miss New Orleans and miss it each night and day? I know I'm not wrong. The feeling's getting stronger the longer I stay away. Miss the moss-covered vines, the tall sugar pines, where mockingbirds used to sing And I'd like to see The lazy Mississippi A hurrying in to spring Oh, the mighty grass The memories of Creole's tunes That fill the air I dream of old yanders in June and soon I'm wishing that I were there Do you know what it means to miss New Orleans When that's where you left your heart There's something more I miss the one I care for More than I miss New Orleans